Hello, I'm Scotia Morgovich. Welcome back for another episode of Creative Responders in Conversation, our monthly interview series where we hear from people in the front line of the arts and emergency management sector as they prepare, respond and recover from disaster. Today's guest is Dr Jen Ray. Jen is of Canadian Red River Métis Scottish descent. She's an artist researcher, facilitator and educator. If we're going with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's logic here, it's putting you into more of an acceptance space. It's this realisation that things are really bad and they're going to get worse and you can choose to be nihilistic or you can choose to get into fundamentalist thinking, but if you can connect with others and you can share stories and you can create a sense of belonging and a sense of collective activism or collective action, that you have the potential to weather this together. Jen's practice-led research is focused on contemporary environmental art and environmental communication with a particular emphasis on cultural responses to climate change. Since 2015, Jen's work around the climate emergency has focused on discourses around food futures, disaster preparedness and speculative futures, predominantly explored through multi-platform creative projects, research, facilitation and community alliances. Jen is a core artist of Arts House's five-year refuge project a project that brings together artists, emergency service providers and communities to research climate-related emergencies and explore the impact of creativity in disaster preparedness. She's also the director of Fair Share Fair and the co-founder of Faulkner Commons, creative and research-informed projects that centre food justice, land remediation and social cohesion in the climate emergency context. I have had the pleasure of working with Jen in her capacity as a board member of Creative Recovery Network. She's also on the board of the International Environmental Communication Association. As you'll hear in this conversation, Jen has had some really meaningful insights into how the act of imagining or speculative future scenarios can benefit us as a society and a very clear view of the richness that creatives offer into this space. I hope you enjoy this conversation with creative responder, Jen Ray. Well, it's so great to have you with us today, Jen. I'm calling in from um, Mianjin and Yagara and Turrbal country. A little warmer up here than where you are. Where are you today? Hi, Scotia, thanks. Um, I'm calling in from Jajaran country um, in regional Victoria, Castlemaine, and it is, it's sunny today, but it is cold. <laughs> I just saw photos of my friend in the snow not quite where you are, but not that far away. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've managed to avoid snow for about 13 years now. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good leading to tell us a little bit about where you're from, Jen, and how you came to settle where you are now. Yeah, I think um, my story is similar to a lot of people who have found themselves in Australia. Um, I didn't intend to stay. I came here and researched and ended up leaving minus 40 degree weather to plus 40 degree weather up in Darwin um, in 2006 and then came here for postgraduate study and just was loving the work I was doing and continued into a PhD and you know fell in love and the story is I'm, I'm still here. <laughs> and, and so where what country <laughs> are you is your home base? Oh sorry um, from Canada 
so I came here from Canada in 2006 and mm. yeah and I've been here since then so which part of Canada Oh, from um, I grew up outside of Toronto and have called Alberta home since then. So, anyone who doesn't know Alberta, it's um, it's the place where pretty much all environmental damage happens. You know, it's, <laughs> <laughs> we've, it's it's got the tar sands, which is like a major blemish mm. um, on the earth, and you know, it's got a. a a beef industry and tourism industry, um, skiing, you know, which causes all sorts of problems with water and as well as um, the timber industry. So mm. it's the Texas, it's known as the Texas of the North. Well, that background of your home country, Jin, uh, I can see where your climate justice and climate activism comes from that threads and weaves through your work and your various practices across arts and academia. Could you talk about how you see the importance of cultural responses to this climate emergency that we live in and what artists can bring to that discourse around preparedness or disaster preparedness? Yeah, I, I, use, I use the metaphor of a garden a lot um, just for its simplicity's sake that, um, you know, for a garden to thrive, it needs to be rich in biodiversity. And, you know, it's we've, we've learned over time that, you know, monocultures have destroyed the landscape um it's very similar in our cultural um responses to you know to the climate emergency or or even more broadly the way in which we've operated in predominantly in the western world for the last 200 years um we it took all of the skills and knowledges to a certain extent to get us into this predicament it's going to take all of the skills and knowledges to to help us out and we have to be able to be comfortable being uncomfortable and that might be having you know frank conversations with people who speak languages different than ours or um, have different perspectives than ours um, because being you know amongst the like-minded or within our own sort of bubbles we're not going to necessarily hear hear the you know the innovative things or hear the um you know be challenged challenge our assumptions or anything like that um so yeah so from I, I guess I've just overcomplicated something very simple, but essentially no, maybe. not at all. I mean the complexity yeah. is simple in the process in a way, isn't it? And maybe that's the value that we bring to this very important conversation is that the artistic frameworks can give people a way to have those conversations in safe ways and to be able to open their perspective in a way that perhaps other mediums haven't enabled. Yeah, I mean we we know that um, the science of climate change hasn't changed very much in the last few decades. And I've said for a long time like that it's a communications crisis and who better to step into that role than people who are masters of communications, you know, and that's the arts, you know, in terms of experiential scenarios, you know, tapping into affect, storytelling, um, you know, aesthetics, all, all of these sorts of things that artists use to, um, to, to, delve into complex topics or to illuminate difficult subject matter or, or or whatever that might be but I mean that's that's the thing about um, the science is that we haven't it has never been able to tap into the hearts and minds of the everyday people mm. tell the story in multiple languages mm. so you've been a core artist of the Arts House five-year refuge project 
And we have covered this on the podcast previously, but for those who aren't familiar, it's a project that brings together artists, emergency service providers and communities to rehearse climate-related emergencies and to explore the impact of creativity and disaster preparedness uh, more broadly. So could you tell us a bit about your involvement, um, Jen, in Refuge and some of the work that's come out of this project for you? Yeah, so um, I've been part of Refuge um, 2005, I think, when the idea was percolating, um, and I've been a core artist in the project as a whole, but I've created work since 2016. Um, I went into um, Refuge with the view that that we were stepping into the climate emergency, that we were stepping into um, an understanding that disasters are likely to happen and that they're going to increase in the future and that it was no longer going to be about raising awareness around climate change. And so um, I started questioning, you know, what uh, predominantly initially around food, thinking about what sort of food might be, will will we be eating, you know, if we start to have things around food scarcity or food wars or so forth. And um, and that's when we in refuge, you know, we've rehearsed um, a flood scenario, a heat wave, a pandemic um, and climate related displacement. and Now, you know, cumulative disasters. And when we were looking at weather events in the first two years, food seemed to be something very easy to to delve into in many ways, because um, a flood scenario, you know, how how it would affect a food bowl, you know, or heat wave, how it could affect crops and crop failure and drought and so forth. But it's become far more complex as we've delved into this project. I think where we started and where we are now, it's, it's changed a lot. And that's, I think, because of the depth of relationships and the depth of inquiry that has happened over the course of those six years. And maybe it's to do also about understanding the dual responsibility that as soon as you start to unpack cause and effect, you see more the complexity and the need to be participatory in that process. Yeah, and I, I, I think also just working in the context of um, having so many different skills and knowledges at the table, you're really understanding the complexities and that every question leads to a new question um, and that we are really learning by doing. And I think after, you know, in 2018, when we did a pandemic, we were, we were talking about how alarming the word pandemic is. You know, maybe we should just rehearse it, an epidemic. <laughs> you know, and no, here we are, you know, yeah. a few years later, actually living in a pandemic. Um, and we, yeah, it, we're learning that the complexity is something that um, we need to be agile dealing with. And as artists, we were working very much in a perpetual responsiveness nature. We didn't have a rehearsal, just like now we don't have any rehearsals. We've never lived in a pandemic like this before, you know, in real life. We're learning that agility and responsiveness and flexibility and care for one another are sort of the critical tools that we need to, to mm-hmm. be able to get out of bed in the morning or thrive or, or whatever you want to call it. The things that we might say are intrinsically human how to be more human I think um, one of the beautiful things I've seen in your work over the years Jen is that um, capacity to kind of bring people around a table around an issue and to be able to work to find the different voices that people add you were saying before the multiple the multiple knowledges that people might bring to a subject or a challenge 
Um, can you talk a little bit about that in your work? I know that a lot of your work is kind of focused around, you know, what are the 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 deep knowledges that First Nations bring and can lead us with within this space of preparedness or mitigation or response and how can we give them um, the position of leadership and certainly some um, weighted engagement? Yeah, um, I, I guess listening listening in different forms over time and um, you know being involved in refuge sometimes you're just hearing the same things over and over again and or you're hearing things like you know the co-opted you know the co-opting of different languages um, and but not necessarily seeing it in action you know and living in a multicultural community my own first nations heritage and so forth I think at a certain point it it was just like that knowledge exists Right? like in others it's it's that these bubbles that are necessarily you know in the sustainability movement or in the climate movement they're not talking right and it was that it was there was a realization that that knowledge already exists you know and it's just there's no platforms for it in in mainstream sort of arts arts and culture some of these conversations are happening right it's just mm. that the, we're, we're not having conversations together and I think through, especially in the last three years with my works in Refuge, I've been slowing down processes and making more long-form works so that we can have these conversations and that the conversations create the work. So with Portage, it was about finding, we don't have to agree on everything, but understanding that Okay, a common, a common understanding is that we are all going to live through the climate emergency. How we experience it is going to be different um, based on our social circumstances, economic circumstances, um, psychological circumstances. Um, but how can we, you know, how can we come together? How can we come together in a form that allows us to have a conversation, right? Mm-hmm. And so Portage, the first year was um, having a, you know, a, a boat building. And one of the, this actually draws from having um, a young child, you know, about parallel play, right? Sometimes when you have parallel play, you tend to have conversations beside each other. Anyone who works in a, in a kitchen knows that when you're all chopping vegetables, you get to know people really well because you're side by side. And so it was creating a scenario for these conversations to happen. And it wasn't necessarily about building the boat. It, the boats. It was actually about having the conversations, and then at the same time, um, it was skill sharing. So, um, and just provocative questions. You know, things like, what are the materials um, that are in our natural and built environment that, if we needed to build a raft or boat or a shelter, that are accessible to us? And so it just gets people thinking about that. But then also, what are the skills and knowledges that are at the thresholds of being lost or undervalued? that exist that we might need to know in an emergency. And I think the boat building was an excellent example of that because we, when we designed the idea of building the boats, we had planned on using screws and bolts to hold the hulls together. And um, Sione Francis knew knot tying and ended mm-hmm. up teaching a lot of um, the volunteers how to knot tie. And we built 
those entire boats using all different types of lashing techniques, right? And then it just that that skill passed on, and then you know two years later when we're building the um, the shelters, those skills came back into the room again, um, uh, which was amazing, yeah. you know. So mm, beautiful, yeah. And I think um, there's something that that's a kind of conversation that you're building through the new works that you're developing as well. How do we share story in order to to pass um to pass knowledges on and the the film that you just recently made with claire coleman as the sort of final i think was the final work that you did for refuge jen called um refugium talks a lot about that idea of how we hold knowledge and 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 tell story in order to plan for the future can you can you describe the premise of the film for us yeah, so um, Claire and I created Refugium not to be a film originally. It was um, going to be a performance, but because in 2020 um, we couldn't meet to, to do the script writing and so forth, we Zoomed once a week, almost every week, for two or three hours. And um, in Feb- January, February, it, decisions happened that made it into a film. And our conversations had a lot to do... Um, with trauma in the climate emergency and historical trauma, but also um, thinking about trauma's impact on being able to survive and thrive. And we were think we were talking a lot about, you know, uh, you know what are what are the sort of skills and knowledges that our future ancestors are going to need in the climate emergency, and what would it look like if our the children of the future weren't traumatized. Like, even though, you know, it's predicted that this unprecedented climate that we're living in is going to become more volatile, like, how could we actually work in a way in which they're not traumatized through this process or that they have the skills or knowledge to be able to deal with that? And so um, in doing this work, we were thinking about the stories that haven't been told to us or the stories that need to be told or need to be uncovered, right? Um, And we were talking a lot about how um, the pandemic, the Black Plague, that we don't have a lot of the stories of the Black Plague, right? And if we knew some of those stories, maybe we wouldn't have had the outcomes that we have with COVID. Would we have learnt from the decisions that they made? Oh, that's also the Spanish flu too. That's not that long ago. And yet we still haven't really got much of a... Uh, context of how that response worked yeah and yeah exactly and um and then the whole idea of like what refugee means right um it's about from a biological perspective when a species environment is is volatile that they will retreat into a cave or you know um and or or elsewhere into it will retreat and then it'll reorganize before going out into the world and that's necessary for survival protection mode Protection mode, yeah. Um, and Claire was talking about a Noongar story as well um, in terms um, from 6,000 years ago about a flood that forced the Aboriginal communities to retreat from the land. And in, in that, they formed um, a council of elders in terms of their decision-making. So it was another form of re- like a human reorganization. And so we were, th- you know, that influenced... Um, so the title of this piece as well as 
thinking about how how can we reorganize and how can we keep stories alive and that's when we started thinking about you know a pub about a public pedagogy right to make information accessible to to future ancestors and making it accessible through meaningful storytelling and um and so we created this sort of fictional 100 years where um claire is herself living through a collapse you know extreme volatility in in melbourne she's in, in her 60s and i am playing my future ancestor who has escaped to love saskatchewan and it was a dialogue between these uh, f- future ancestor and claire being her future self and um you know and what we've been thinking a lot about now is like you know with the center for reworlding because in the film it talks about the center for reworlding now we're really looking at well what would it actually take to make something like this happen mm. you know mm-hmm. and so how do you put it into reality yeah and so that's where we're sitting right now is we have um eight reworlders who are a part a part of this and um a council of aunties and elders and grandmas um, and we hope that through questions and guidance, we'll start to uncover some of the stories and and figure out what are some of the. It's 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 less about the what and the why, but figuring out how you know, like mm. how how do we develop a public pedagogy? How do we engage um, young people in a, in this sort of conversation that's going to be necessary for the survival, but also that that's not going to be traumatizing. Mm. So putting up uh, safe future thinking. Mm-hmm. So the the theme um, that really spoke in watching um, Refugee is that idea of creating futures for others that we that we needed to be taken out of our own personal concerns for our immediate survival to step back and to think about um, what you in the film called future ancestors. You know, can, how do we how do we put in place now so so that we're projecting um, a longevity. Can you can you speak a bit about this idea of intergenerational justice and how it informs your work and what that kind of means in terms of that idea of future ancestoring or reworlding? Yeah, um, I, th- I think it's something that has been, become very liberating um, working in the disaster preparedness space now for quite some time and um, the climate change communication space for even longer um when thinking about intergenerational justice and future ancestors um it takes you into a very um activist space right it's it's an imagining space it's an opening up space um it's it's non-linear it can go in all different directions um if, if we even just think about um, what's happened since 2018 when the IPCC report said that we had 12 years left and it, all of a sudden that became across, you know, came... Um, yeah, immediate it, it alarm new- bells. Mm. Yeah, and I mean, and we were seeing it in newspapers and, and magazines all over the place. And what I what I noticed, and you probably yourself noticed, is that a lot of people went into grief like and shock and a lot of the reports were how do you deal with this grief there were a lot of different groups that came together talking about climate related grief councils were offering different psychological support services around grief um and the thing is is um richard eckersley talks about that whenever your cultural responses relating to apocalypse 
to the apocalypse, people often fall back into, um, you know, fight or flight responses or paralysis. Um, and that leads them into sort of nihilistic feelings or fundamentalist feelings. But there's also activism. And activism is, is not maladaptive. It actually it allows you to be in a, in a space where you, you can do things, you know, um, and when you're thinking in terms of intergenerational kind of enga- justice, engages engages your sense of hope, doesn't it? That yeah, it where does. Where there is action, there's hope. It it does, and um, and it allows you, in many ways, I think, to to unstick from the past, mm. right? Or to dissect what went wrong, you know, or to be critical. It it is it is an opening up space, and. There's also, you know, like if we're going with like Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's logic here, it's putting you into more of an acceptance space, right? It, it's it's this realization that things are really bad and they're mm-hmm. going to get worse, and um, you can choose, you know, you can you can choose to be nihilistic or you can choose to be fund, you know, get into fundamentalist thinking. But um, if you can connect with others. And you can share stories and you can create a sense of belonging and um, a sense of collective act, activism or collective action, you know, that you have the potential to, to weather this together. I think also in terms of intergenerational justice, um, even, even like in relation to the pandemic, people are, are often saying that this is a, that, this is a, that the pandemic's over. Right, or mm. we can return to normal. Mm. Right, they're thinking about time as being very, you know, discreet or short. That these things are once-off events. We're actually in the long emergency of climate change. You know, we're in the lo- and intergenerational justice works within that sort of thinking as well. You know, mm. Mm. it's interesting because um, you know, working within the broader premise of emergency management, there is a lot of um, events, you know, preparedness events, and your your sense of preparedness or this idea or process of speculative futures is is um, is a kind of next layer on <laughs> from those notions of come and practice what's going to happen when the bushfire happens. Um, mm. So this act of imagining, rehearsing, imagined futures that are way beyond even just a, an incident event. You know, there's benefits for us um, as a society to be thinking with that long-term view. I suppose that's something that we learn most definitely from our First Nations people. And what what kind of tools um, do we as creatives offer into this space? I think it's, um, you know, there is a lot of energy here at the moment. What What are we adding, do you think, into the possibilities yeah, I, th- I think one of the things that we offer is around risk taking um, and being comfortable with risk and asking questions um, about, I mean, activating the imagination. And often that is is asking the questions, you know, like, um, as well as like if then statements, like, okay, thinking of where I am now, if there is a bushfire, Right, that happens in three or four months' time from now, right? And who's who's going to be affected by it, right? And who are my neighbors? And you know, what sort of resources do I have that are accessible to me? 
What can I do in terms of comfort? What types of food might, you know, might I eat, my family eat, my community eat, you know, in, in relation to this bushfire? It's, I mean, a lot of this is actually about asking questions um, and seeing, you know, bringing in elements of, you know, resistance, you know, to, to you know, to what's happening right now. Um, asking questions that people don't ask um, and I, I think another thing is like with, with artists, you know, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. We bring a lot of skills and knowledges and tools that I think um, we can bring to the table in terms of what's already being done, you know? Yeah, and maybe it's a sense of the relational too because, um, you know, traditionally the, the preparedness events are about um, strategies and you know, concrete actions rather than a relational sense of the emotive and the broader community connection. When we first moved to Castlemaine, um, there was a one of those rehearsals that I always heard, you know, like being the city person, you know, I'd heard, heard about in regional areas. And there it was in the Oval, you know, all the ambulances and fire trucks and SES trucks. And, you know, the whole Oval was all, you know, that bright orange. And... Um, and I got out of the car and I was really excited. My partner just went, like, only you would get excited about this. <laughs> um, and, but I, I ended up observing, like, I didn't actually go too deep. I just sort of walked around. And it, and what it was is it was, um, you know, tables set up and people handing out brochures, right, and mm. having one-on-one conversations. But it was Saturday, and the town was thriving, right? And so we crossed the road, and that's where everybody was. You know, <laughs> people weren't actually coming Socializing over Socializing and drinking coffee and catching up on gossip. Yeah, and I was going, like, but the weekend before, the farmer's market was there, right? And it was thriving, right? Like, where, you know, there's something about a disconnect there, you know, in terms of people not going and stepping in to you know, that emergency space and how can we, how can we, and I mean, that's what refuge is in many ways is trying to create those conversations that bring those things together um, in a way in which it's fun and it's meaningful and you want to be there. You know, um, there's um, that deficit model of information transfer isn't working in the climate space any more than it is in the emergency um, management preparedness space, you know. Hmm. Well, here we are in July 2021, and we're currently in another wave of COVID impacts across our different communities. I'm just wondering if there is anything you might like to share about how you or your community have kind of lived amongst and handled the challenges of this past year or so. What kind of support structures are the formal, informal that you ha- you've been able to p- draw on and how that has sort of also influenced these new developments of your work? Yeah, um, I think I'm in refugium right now. I, I, I feel like I'm, I've retreated for a bit. Um, last year, we were, um, my family was very involved in the COVID response um, around um, food distribution. Um, we were an outbreak suburb. We had 181 cases and 45 deaths across the other side of our fence. Um, I'm reflecting a lot on that, you know, in terms of 
I, I feel like it was my skills and understanding of refuge and around food systems that, uh, and my partner's background in community development and also doing a lot of grassroots stuff in the community that created the fertile ground for us to step into that um, and, and be there in terms of response. But where um, I'm reflecting a lot upon is around that next level of response. And maybe maybe you even have experience there. You know, like you have the, the, fir- the frontline responders, right? But what happens when they get tired, right? Are they, you know, or what's, what's holding up, the, you know, supporting them? And, you know, and who's the next response after that? You know, and how do we create, if we're going to be dealing with cumulative impacts, right? We're going to have waves of, of different sort of, yeah, and certainly the, stru- the structures aren't put into place. Like I know even Victoria where you are, the flood and storm of the Yarra Valley area has meant that uh, people have been activated for the fire communities now being spread across there. And you, there is this lag behind in terms of how you and who do you call on because everyone is so stretched and tired, you know, to, uh, and yet there's a will and an expectation unration- irrationally perhaps that, they take on more like it's um it's a real it is a real challenge for us into the next years ahead of how we do manage that support networks and employment processes for people to work in the disaster space yeah it's it's yeah it's it's the waves of of response i think that's what i'm Mm. trying to unpack in in Mm. terms of and i think it goes into into some sort of thinking around being comfortable and being uncomfortable, you know, um, and sense of belonging, sense of duty, you know, like I think about my volunteers, the volunteers at Faulkner Commons, not my volunteers, but the volunteers at Faulkner Commons, the ones who just keep coming back, you know, mm. and the ones who bring others when they do come back and so forth. There's something about that sense of belonging and the value of of what we're doing together, right? And I, I found during those sort of dark days um, last year that the, that it was their presence that bolstered me, like because mm. there were some some weeks that I just felt like I couldn't couldn't go back, or that the responsibility was too much. Um, and how do how do we how do we create other? You know, how do we inspire others to be like those volunteers? I think it's kind of the offer too. You said that you, you know, some people brought others along. You know, to be, to be offered the opportunity to come and join. I, I think we forget that mm-hmm. that's such a beautiful thing. Yeah. You know how, how yeah. do we how do we get better at the invitation, so that people do feel like they're valued and have something to contribute. So much yeah. isolation out there. I think that's part of how we need to break down those um, points of isolation through our invitations yeah oh I was just listening to the future of loneliness and um, Olivia Lang has just published a book um, and she's she's not she's a writer for the Guardian and amongst and Freeze magazine she's she wrote an article in 2015 called um, the future of loneliness and it listening to it in the audiobook it really resonated and I looked it up last night reading it again around how she was drawing connections between loneliness and fundamentalist thinking oh. and how the pen and 
how the pandemic, you know, now, you know, six years later, how that can actually, you can see the correlations between, um, you know, the anti-vax movement or the, the was it QAnon? QAnon? Um, people, you know, how social, social media and all of these things that are meant to bring us together have separated us. And these algorithms and, and so forth have, have created different levels of paranoia. Um, but if yeah, I just imagine, you know, like if somebody was in that state and you, know, you were the person that knocked on the door and said, hey, I'm your neighbor. You know, we're in a pandemic. If you need anything, I'm next door. You know, we can have a coding system or here, you know, I've baked a lasagna. Here's half of it, you know, or we're volunteering over here. Would you like to come or, you know, what type of milk do you drink? You know, I've got an extra mm. case, you know, or, or whatever. But like different ways of getting to know people can pull them out of these sort of depths of despair and loneliness. And... um this is what we're going to need in the future. Like, you you know from emergency service work that in a in a crisis, you know you're more likely to be helped out by your neighbor than you are um, emergency services or local government. And hmm, in most the, definitely, we have to understand that it's too big and too complex to feel like we can rely on a singular institutional kind of response. Hmm. Mm, yeah. So more more cups of tea and more stories and more time spent sitting in that conversational space. Jen, as always, I love sitting in that conversational space with you. (laughs) Always so much to share and so many great um, thinkings that are coming through your work. I really look forward to seeing where the the reworlding takes you. Thanks for joining us today. I hope you keep warm in the next little freezing time thank you and if i thanks for inviting me and if if i can um just impart one little bit something for closing is um adopting a you know we've this saying we've never done this before is really liberating (laughs) (laughs) right it's your new banner liberating yeah Yeah, we've never done this before so it it gets us into an experimental thinking Mm. immediately Right? And just going, you know, like, how, how do we... Okay, we've never done this and before. And of course, how we're going to we, make mistakes, we, and that's okay. It's a learning process. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And so, yeah. But thank you very much for having me. Oh, my pleasure. So, Jen, um, Refugee is available to view on Vimeo um, through your website, and we'll include that link on our show notes. Um, where else can people find you if they'd like to engage with your work? through the website um, genreis.com so j-e-n-r-a-e-i-s.com and also any of the food related projects through um, the website Fair Share Fair and that's f-a-i-r and then share <laughs> and then f-a-r-e dot com mm. we'll put that in the show notes so that people can click through thanks so much Jen Thanks for joining me for Creative Responders in Conversation. And a special thanks to Jen for making the time to speak with me. We'll include links in the show notes if you'd like to learn more about Jen's work. And if you haven't watched Refugia, I really encourage you to check it out. We'll put the link for that in the show notes also. All of our past episodes of our documentary series and other conversations can be found in the usual podcast apps, 
and on our website, along with transcripts for every episode and links related to the topics we cover. We'll be back next month with another conversation. I hope you can join us then. This podcast is produced by me, Skosha Monkovich, and my Creative Recovery Network colleague, Jill Robson. Our sound engineer is Tiffany DeMack, and original music is composed by Mikey Squire. The Creative Recovery Network is assisted by the Australian Government through the Australia Council, its arts funding and advisory body. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.